with me, please, to the book of Psalms and Psalm 8, please. 8 Psalm. Find it there. It's a very short psalm, so just let's read it together. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him, son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Several years ago, uh, Chris Bowater, a very fine Christian singer, songwriter, worship leader in England, uh, who has uh, written many good songs that the church has been singing around the world for years, and on one of his uh, CDs called Still, uh, there's a number of lovely songs, but one in particular has got these words in one of the verses. It says, He has chosen the weak so that even angels seek the glory of the vessel made of clay. He has chosen the weak that even the angels seek the glory of the vessels made of clay. There's something extraordinary about each of us. Samus recognized that when he penned this psalm. When he asked the question, what is man that God is mindful of him? the Son of Man, that He visited Him. He made us just a little lower than the angels and has crowned us with glory and honor. So you are the crown of God's creation. You are the apex, the summit of all that God has ever created. There is nothing, there is no one quite like us. There is a glory that is reserved for us that God affords to no other creature in the universe. No other creature is so creative, and yet no other creature is so destructive. No other creature is so inventive, deductive, intuitive, and yet, so base and so depraved and so capable of such wicked and terrible deeds. 
We can dream, we can aspire, we can hope, we can laugh, we can cry, we can feel great joy, we can feel awful shame. And so we are unique. Of all the animals that are on earth, none of them are like us. No monkey can paint a masterpiece. No cow can compose a concerto. No penguin can write a poem. No dolphin can design a building. That is the domain of men and women. So we're in a class by ourselves, aren't we? So what is our secret? Why are we, as the song said, the envy of even the very angels? What makes us so special? Why do we vessels of clay receive such honor from Almighty God? That's the question. Well, let me give you three answers tonight. First of all, because He has set His love upon us. Because He has set His love upon us, we are made in the image of God, the imprimatur, the the stamp of God is written all over us. No angel, no cherubim, no seraphim have ever experienced the depths of God's love that you and I have experienced because they have never known Calvary's love. And Calvary's love is the deepest love that there is, but they've never experienced it. And Jeremiah 31 and 3 says, The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Doesn't the Bible say it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance? God in His mercy, God in His compassion, God in His goodness leads us to repentance. Why? Because He loves us. Why does He love us? Only God knows that. Because <clears throat> actually sometimes we're not that lovable. Sometimes we can't even love each other. And yet amazingly, God still loves us. Adam and Eve, of course, were unique. Our first parents, federal head of a new race, new species that never been before. No angel was ever given the biological reproductive ability to produce after its own kind, but we were. In Genesis 3, chapter 8, it tells us that God would meet with man in the garden in the cool of the day to have sweet fellowship, to have an intimate relationship with. Imagine, out of all the billions of planets in the universe, that this tiny little one, that Almighty God would come to it, would visit it, to meet with man, to enter into a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship. He doesn't have that with angels. Just with us. But not only that, there's something else. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. 
Genesis chapter 2, and we'll just read a couple of verses from verse 15 of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, God was just not content with having us all to himself. But God actually wanted us to share with one another, to be in relationship not just with him, but to be in relationship with another. And so... He said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave name to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Let me just back up here a little a second or two. Because there seems to be an apparent contradiction here and there isn't. If you were to read Genesis 1, you would see in the order of creation that on the fifth day, God created the birds and the fish. And then early on the sixth day, He created the beasts of the fields and the animals and then a little bit later on the sixth day, he created Adam, man. And then a little bit later on the sixth day, he completed his creation by creating Eve from the side of Adam. Now, whenever we just read there, and when you see the order there, it looks like that Adam was created before the animals. Whereas in Genesis 1, the animals were created for Adam. So it's not a contradiction. It's that there's no two things. In chapter 2, it's simply letting, rather than give the whole order again, it's simply letting us know that God used the same material and the same power, the very dust of the earth that He made animals with, He made man with, that He made man with, He made animals with from the same dust of the earth. Of course, the mixture must have been different because we're very different than the animals, aren't we? We look very different. At least I think we do. I know sometimes people call each other pigs and snakes and all kinds of things, rude things like that. But it's simply saying here, chapter 2, that God created the animals and the birds and the fish and the sea from the same elements of the earth that he created mankind. But the second thing is telling us is that God was concerned that he needed a helper, someone that would be comparable to him, uncompatible to him, one that would be like him, 
a human being. But first of all, he brings all the animals. Now, I'm supposing that was representation of all the animals that was on the earth at that time. Brought them before Adam. And he named every one. Now, this was happening over a space of one day. He named every one. At the end of it, when they all had passed by, it says there was not found among them one that was comparable to Adam. And if you read on there in the next verse, it says the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept. He took out one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. So not only are you and I made for intimate and personal relationship with Almighty God, but intimate and personal relationship with another on this earth. One of the things that should be most prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ is relationship. To come to church to have relationships. Why do you think we bother with men's nights and ladies' meetings and cell groups and all of this stuff? Why do you think we bother? Just to have another meeting? Just to fill a program? So that we get to know each other. So that we get to hear each other's needs and our difficulties and our problems and pray for one another and try to help one another and try to be there for one another. That's the reason why. So that we're in relationship. God has constituted... I'm getting out of the beaten track here a little bit. God has... God has constituted the church for a purpose. And lots of Christians has never discovered the purpose. So that we're accountable and we're responsible and that we're in relationship. And so, God has set His love upon us. And He's brought us into relationship with Himself and relationship with one another. It's very hard to go through life without relationship, isn't it? I don't know if you watch those programs. Sometimes you see them on TV where, uh, where people relocate to Australia, say, or New Zealand or America, wherever. They relocate. And they look at all the brochures and uh, they decide that would be a better way of life and it's a sunshine state and it's this and it's that. And they gather up the family and they go away and they give them a trial, a week's trial. And uh, they try to find a job and introduce them to, you know, job market and get a house somewhere. And they're on the beach and it's wonderful. It's like a kind of mini holiday. And then before they make up their mind, uh, they, they phone back home and they set it up on TV. And the granny and the granda comes on and, you know, and the in-laws and outlaws come on. And they're all sitting crying and boo-hooing because they're going to Australia. And that's the moment when it begins to dawn that life is more than just a place. It's relationships. And sometimes that's the point where they turn back and say, do you know what? It's not worth it. I'd rather have the relationships. And life is about relationships with God and with one another. So we should cherish them and we should look after them and we should try to help each other in them because it's a very lonely life if you're not in relationship. It can be very lonely. The Bible says that God sets the solitary and families. And so God has set His love upon us. 
Secondly, because he has sent his son to us. Because he has sent his son to us. Look at verse 4 again of Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now, man is mentioned twice there, and the psalmist used two entirely different words. Whenever he says at the first time, what is man that you're mindful of him, the word is Enosh. And Enosh describes man in his fallen state. Man who is broken, man who is frail, man who is wretched, man who is sinful. In our fallen state, that's what we are before God. One translation puts it this way, What is man that you in mercy constantly remember him? King James says that you visit him. And the son of man, and he used an entirely different word here, it's the same word for Adam. And we think of Adam in his unfallen state. Think of Adam before the fall. Now we can just about understand, just about understand why God would want to come and visit Adam in his unfallen state. Just create it, perfect, in relationship with God. We can understand that just about. But what's hard to understand is that God would visit Enosh, that God would come to visit man in his fallen state, in his sinful state, in his frail, broken state, and still want relationship, still want a closeness and an intimacy with broken men. And this is the mystery and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would come to mortal, death-doomed, wretched, sinful creatures like us and say, I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me. I want to come into your life and I want to change it. That's the kernel of the gospel, isn't it? No wonder the angels seek the glory of the vessels made of clay. <laughs> we were talking about angels this morning, and this kind of follows on. It wasn't intentional, by the way, but it just kind of follows on, doesn't it? <sighs> angels must look at us and think they are so blessed. They are so blessed. Above all of the creatures in heaven and earth, they are so blessed because God the Father wants a relationship with them. With all of their faults and all of their mistakes and all of their sins, He wants to enter into an intimate, personal relationship. In Hebrews chapter 2, This is where the writer quotes this psalm again. Verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. 
But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands, and you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now, at this moment, we do not yet see all things put under him. But when we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in you. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Insomuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, just back a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2. I love this verse. But God, this is verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. The word rich there is plusios, which is where we get the word Pluto from. And Pluto was the God of wealth. So Paul is saying, but God, who is so wealthy in mercy <laughs> because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that, while we were perfect. Is that what it says? While we were doing our best? While we were trying our hardest? While we were thinking about him 24 hours every day? 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Huh. That's love, isn't it? Well, you know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But 1 John 3.16 says this, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Isn't it wonderful to think that God so truly loved us that he was willing to lay down his life on that cross for you and for me? The Bible says, Greater love is no man than this, <coughs> that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And yet God laid down his life through his son for us while we were yet sinners. And so, why do us as vessels of clay receive such glory? Because he set his love upon us. And because he has sent his son to us. And then finally, because he has put his Holy Spirit within us. Only you and I were the only creatures in heaven and earth that are filled with God's Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Not the angels, not the seraphim, not the cherubim, not the archangels, but us. God has entrusted His Holy Spirit in vessels of clay. Isn't that wonderful? That he would put his Holy Spirit in each of us. Whenever the angels stood, I'm sure in amazement, before the world began, whenever the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, brooded, hovered over the face of the waters, waiting from the command of heaven when God would speak and suddenly all that dynamic dynamis incredible power of the Holy Spirit would go into action and in an instant this world was created and how they must be amazed that that same dynamic creative Holy Spirit would now dwell in each of us vessels of clay. If you're a born-again believer tonight, you have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says without the Holy Spirit, you're none of His. Now there's infillings of the Holy Spirit, but you have the Holy Spirit. If you didn't, you wouldn't be born again. It's the Holy Spirit who causes you to be born again of God. It's supernatural. You cannot explain it, but it happens in an instant. And when it happens, you're changed forever. You're never the same. Amen? A.B. Simpson, good old preacher, said, There's a great difference between the blessing of the Spirit 
and spiritual blessings. There's a great difference between the blessing of the Spirit and spiritual blessings. He said this is a case where a single noun is worth more than a hundred adjectives. In other words, the person of the Holy Spirit is worth more than all of His gifts. I hope you don't think of the Holy Spirit as a nit. I know that whenever you're maybe you're a young Christian, you're just a baby in Christ or just coming into these things, there's a tendency to think of the Holy Spirit as a nit, as some kind of a force or some kind of a vague nebulous ether or something. The Holy Spirit is a person, but you can't see Him, but He's a person, and He's got personality, and He can be grieved, and He can be hurt. He's sensitive, but He's also powerful. And so when the Holy Spirit comes in his person into our lives, that he brings with him all that he is. All of his gifts, all of his graces, all of his attributes, all of his power, everything he is, is in him. And if he's in us, it's in us. All that enabling, all that fruit, all those attributes... In Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be through in a moment, we'll be brief tonight, but in Ephesians chapter 1, let me show you a couple of things here. Let's read verse 13 and 14. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You were sealed In those olden days, particularly when traders would go about, they would go to the marketplace and they would see goods that they wanted, they'd pay a price, and they may say, I can't take it with me right now, but I'll be back for it. And so until I come back, I want to seal it. And they would take their wax, they'd melt it, they'd take their ring, and they would seal it. And that seal would denote that that is that person who owns the seal. And they will come back for it. It's bought, it's paid for, it's sealed. It's only a question of when they will come back, not if they will come back, but when they will come back. It belongs to them. And whenever Jesus went to the cross and he died for us and he gave his life for our sins and whenever we became born again his Holy Spirit sealed us because he went back to the glory and he promised he would return for us and we've been waiting 
and it could come at any moment of any day. In fact, it's going to come sooner rather than later. But right now, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We cannot see the seal, but heaven sees it and hell sees it. The angels see it and the devils see it. And whenever you go about as a Christian, as a believer, there's a seal in your life. It's upon your life that heaven recognizes, that hell recognizes. Because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the redemption of the purchased possession. Did you get that? See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He sealed you. So that there ever after, you belong to the Lord. And He's coming back to claim you as His own. <laughs> he paid for you with His blood. He couldn't have made a bigger investment in you than that. For as much as we were not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. And one day very soon, he's coming back for his purchased possession. Whenever Jesus was dying on the cross, whenever he uttered those three words, it is finished. It's all one word in the Greek, tetelestai, which means paid in full. Nothing more to pay. Paid in full. The work has been done. If you're saved tonight, you're bought and paid for. You belong to Jesus and it's only a case of when He comes back to take you to Himself. Amen. Because you're sealed now with the Holy Spirit. And then there's illumination of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17 of that first chapter. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Glory to God. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to the truths of this Word, to show us who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes along and teaches us these things. This is why you have got to get into this book. He's the author of it. And if you want to know about it, ask the author. Say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand your words. What am I in Christ? What is this saying? What is this prayer that Paul prayed? What will you send behind that prayer? Because this is for our admonition. This is to teach us. Whenever you were a little child and you were growing, you were being instructed by your parents. You didn't know very much but bit by bit by bit, month by month, year by year, you started to gain knowledge. And then you went to school. And then some of you went to college. And then some of you went to university. It's a lifetime of learning, isn't it? And it's the same in the spiritual life. You see, if you didn't know very much, how could you? You're just born again into this kingdom. What do you know about it? Not very much. 
You know, your life has changed, but that's about it. But as you live every day with Christ, and you read His Word every day, and you pray, and you seek the Lord, then the Holy Spirit will take what you're reading, and He'll begin to show you things. Whenever I got saved at the beginning, I, well, I was brought up in a Christian home, so I thought I knew everything, honestly. Other Christians in the workplace used to witness to me, and I thought, I know more than they know. So it was a bit of a know-all, but actually, it was all head knowledge. It wasn't in my heart. I really didn't know very much. But when I got saved, it was like starting all over again, because suddenly, I began to see things that I never knew before. And I remember my, my eldest sister bought me, as a little gift, she bought me a bookmark. I lost it. I don't know where it is. I wish I could find it again. Had it for years. A little bookmark was that beautiful scripture from one of the Psalms. Open thou my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And you know, for a long, long time, that was my prayer every day. Every time I opened my Bible, I read that. Say, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And do you know what? The Holy Spirit's faithful. He's the author of this book. And he was opening things up to me that I never knew before. And he's still doing it. Glory to God. <laughs> after all these years. And the wonderful thing, I've been preaching now for know, many years, decades. And after all of that, sometimes you're sitting in your study and you look at something and it's as if you've read it, you've read it a thousand times. It's as if it's the first time you ever read it. And it just jumps out of you. That's the Holy Spirit does that. And you see something you never saw before. And you feel like letting a shout out of you. And then you think, how could I have been so stupid? I've never seen that before. <laughs> See, that's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 19 of that first chapter, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Remember in chapter 2 we said about the exceeding riches of His grace and here we're seeing the exceeding greatness of His power. In the 19th century there was an industrial revolution and man was able to harness power like he never could do before. Great engines powered by steam initially. Great steam locomotives and steam ships. And then he discovered electricity. And boy, that took things to an entirely different level, didn't it? And now there's a new power he discovered. Electricity, invisible power. And they built greater machines and greater engines and greater things because they had greater power. And then the 20th, 20th century, they discovered atomic power. And what power that was can be most destructive and, and can be a blessing to mankind at the same time. But all of that was latent. It was there all the time for centuries, for millenniums it was there until man discovered it and was able to harness that power and use it for the benefit of mankind. 
I wonder how much of the Holy Spirit's power is in each of us right now that's latent, that we have not yet discovered, that we've never harnessed, that we've never ever used. My guess is most of it, most of it, most of it. I wonder are the angels saying, if only the church knew what was available to them. I'm sure they are. Wonders the angels saying, if only they knew what they were in Christ. If only they understood their privileges. And I have to hold my hands up, like you have to hold your hands up and say, there's only a tiny, tiny little part of the power of the Holy Spirit that we've ever discovered. Now maybe in these last days we're coming into, maybe we'll need to discover a lot more. Maybe we'll be in the positions where we'll have to. And we'll need to. Are we ready for it? Are we up for it? Do we want it? <laughs> he has taken the weak so that angels even seek the glory of the vessels made of clay. Yes, we're vessels of clay. Yes, we have got faults and flaws and weaknesses and cracks and all the rest of it. God puts his glory into crack pots, doesn't he? Not crack pots, but crack pots. <laughs> vessels of clay. And you're standing looking at one tonight. But aren't you glad God has still got us on the way to and we're still pliable, and malleable, and workable. And God hasn't finished with any of us yet. He's still working on us. It's a bit uncomfortable sometimes when you're on the way and those big fingers are digging into you and shaping you, but it's all for the good, isn't it? And we're vessels of clay. And he's making us into something of his design, for his purpose, for his glory. Amen. Could you stand with me, please? What a wonderful thing tonight that God should take a life, a broken life, a frail life, sinful life even, that God in His mercy and God in His great love should come into that life and change it. And maybe tonight, in this service, maybe it's you that God has been speaking to. Maybe you're one of the ones that God has said, let me into your life. Let me change it. Let me make you whole. Let me give you a brand new life that you've never, ever had before. Because that's what he wants to do. And so while we're standing here and we're in prayer, and you're thinking to yourself, David, 
I need the Lord. I really need the Lord. Maybe you're thinking, I've known that for a long time, but I've never actually taken the step. I knew that for years and I never took the step. But then one night I did. And thank God, He received me. I've never been the same again. So maybe tonight as we stand here, in these closing moments of this Sunday evening service, you say, David, I would want to be one of those who wants to give my life to Christ. If that is you, I'm going to pray a simple prayer in a moment. And I would like you to respond to that prayer. I'd like to give you the opportunity of praying it with me. And having prayed the prayer and having meant it, then to come and talk to us. Or talk to Clifford here. Say, I need help. I need some guidance. I need some advice. We'll be happy and glad to do that. So will you pray this prayer with me? Then having prayed it, come and talk to Clifford at the front. He who led the worship tonight. And we'll help you and encourage you all that we can. So are you ready to pray? Say these words in your heart tonight. Oh God, I realize tonight that I am a sinner and I need your grace. I need your mercy and I need your salvation. And so tonight I turn from my ways and I turn to you. And I ask you to save my eternal soul tonight to make me a Christian, a true believer in Jesus. I give my life to you right now. And I ask for your blood to cleanse me from all of my sins and to make me a new creature in Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for the preciousness of your gospel. Lord, we look in amazement at your mercy and your love to us. Simple vessels of clay, and yet you love us so much. Thank you for your love. And thank you for the cross of Calvary. Thank you for giving your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. amen.